It's the 1st of March in the year of our salvation, 2009, and it's the first Sunday of Lent. You're back with Father Z and another podcast. back down through memory lane. We've got with us Augustine of Hippo, the great doctor of grace who died in 460. I say memory lane because we're going to cover with him the first thing I did with the very first podcast I made, back podcast number one. Then we're going to have some of your voicemail. I really enjoy getting that through my uh, Skype voicemail box. And uh, we're using new hardware, new software, a different computer. So this whole thing is just really an experiment for me today. I hope it works out with audio levels and so forth. But if it doesn't, I'm sure I'll be hearing from you. But right now, let's get to work. You may be rich or poor. You may be blind or lame. Maybe living in another country. Under another name, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you are. You're gonna have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. Maybe you're a construction worker working on a home. Might be living in a mansion. You might live in a dome You may own guns And you may even own tanks You may be somebody's landlord You may even own banks But you're gonna have to sell During his long career as a bishop, the great doctor of grace, St. Augustine of Hippo, the great North African doctor of the church, uh, spent years going through the Psalms, systematically preaching on them and examining them in what is actually, uh, if you collect it all together, his, his largest work, many, many thousands and thousands of words, dedicated in sermons to examining the Psalms, the Eneraciones in Psalmos, or the Expositions of the Psalms, are mostly sermons. and preached in various places because he traveled around, he traveled all over North Africa on various missions. He spent time in Carthage and he spent time here and there doing things. And everywhere he went, he was called upon to preach. And sometimes he would preach on the Psalms. And we have a wonderful 
uh, sense of how he would preach, because everywhere he went he had stenographers who went with him, more than one, and they would write down literally everything that he said, and even sometimes crowd reactions or what happened outside, because Augustine himself, we hear him through the pens of these stenographers, reacting to the people around him. Of course, Augustine was a great rhetor, a great orator. Uh, he had made a, a career for himself. He was very famous as a orator before he became a Christian. Remember, he went off, left North Africa to go off to Italy and wound up in Milan to be the rhetor of the court, the imperial court there in Milan. And so this was a man who had a great command, a great sense of himself as an orator, and knew precisely how to interact with a crowd. He knew how to pitch his voice, his voice which, which was actually fairly weak. Sometimes in his sermons we hear him saying, please be quiet because my voice isn't strong enough to carry over you. But he knew how exactly to pitch his voice, that is, his tone, the style, and tailor it exactly to the crowd because he was a, he was highly trained in classical rhetoric and oratory, as were all the fathers of the church. Now, it's helpful to know something about the uh, this issue of rhetoric before we go zipping into this um, explanation, his commentary on the psalm. Uh, classical rhetoric was very sophisticated, and there were divisions of rhetoric. They always approach things very systematically. When you were being trained to be a rhetor, everything was broken down into categories. And when we talk about the divisions of rhetoric, you can think of the different sections in your toolbox, the different drawers, and each drawer might have a different slot. And that's kind of how this is all broken down. It's articulated into various parts and members. So if you think about uh, the the classical rhetoric like that toolbox, you can think about the divisions of rhetoric. Here are the actual the names of the divisions. There's in, in Latin, it's inventio, dispositio, elocutio, memoria, and pronunciatio. Well, of course, as you can guess, pronunciatio is how to pronounce the thing. You know, once you get the whole thing together... Uh, then you have to figure out, well, where am I going to raise my voice? And when am I going to make this gesture? And when am I going to speak quietly? And that sort of thing. Uh, but before that, there was memoria. You'd practice it. You'd commit it to, you'd commit it to memory. Uh, in the great high, you know, high speeches, the very important speeches to be out there in the square in front of a crowd, like a panegyric, you know, some, some great... Uh, a praise, a speech of praise for someone, you would memorize those if it was in the high style of rhetoric. In the lower style of rhetoric that Augustine adopts, uh, sometimes he will sit just with a scroll of, of scriptures right in his lap, and he'll speak uh, of these things, you know, speak of the things that come to him uh, as he goes through things systematically. But even then, you can bet that he looked through things and there was that stage of memoria. He knew what he wanted to say. Then there was the elocutio. Well, elocutio, in this part of rhetoric, you would decide, well, who is my audience? What am I trying to accomplish here? Am I trying to instruct them? Am I trying to entertain them? Am I trying to move them to some sort of action? And therefore, 
that will determine the style that I'm going to use. Am I going to use a very high and lofty style, you know, create a real set piece, or am I going to have very plain, uh, very plain speech without a whole bunch of different, you know, very uh, fancy flourishes, but just enough flourishes to really draw people in you. How am I going to do this? Then there's dispositio. We're going backwards through these things, of course. Uh, That's where you would uh, arrange the parts so that you have a logical order to what you want to say. You know, this is the old idea, you know, you'd have the introduction uh, and then you'd try to capture the benevolence of the audience with a captatio benevolentiae and then you'd, you'd introduce your themes and you'd have your proofs and then you would recap things and present, you know, a kind of a final uh, argument. You, you'd arrange your, your speech in the dispositio, dispose it. But first of all, you'd have inventio. And inventio sounds like invention, but, it, you know, of course it means to find something or discover something. You have to ferret out the elements, your arguments of the topic that you're going to explore now, if you're going to expose a text and narrate or narrate or expose a text like a psalm, you have to drill into it and find out the different topics and themes that you're going to examine. And one of the tools of Inventio was to interrogate the text to see what is there. And you'd ask a series of questions, something called statis. You'd, fi- status. you'd find out who and what is there. Well, you think about this today. We often do that when we look into a a situation or a text. We ask the questions, who, what, why, where, when, and how. Well, in Latin, they did the same thing. They'd ask the questions, quis, quid, ubi, quibus auxilis, quomodo, quando. Those are the classic questions, quis, quid, ubi, quibus auxilis, quomodo, quando. So you find in the preaching of the fathers of the church and in the writings, the same techniques of the inventio, figuring what's going on, dispositio, how it's arranged, elocutio, you know, the style, what they're trying to accomplish, memoria, the things that are practiced, and then the pronunciatio, you know, how they're going to actually uh, deliver it. Now, I mentioned this delivery. Well, very often when Augustine preached, he would sit with the scriptures on his lap. The reader would finish reading, and the bishop would be sitting in his chair. And um, then uh, his cathedra, you know, his teaching platform, the the teacher would sit uh, to instruct. And uh, the scroll would be brought to him. In those days, they didn't have books like codexes. They had scrolls that they would unroll. And he would sit with the scroll of scriptures on his lap, and he would go over things line by line, very systematically. And you can hear him asking questions. As a matter of fact, in this section that we're going to hear, you can hear him ask these questions. Now, uh, as we dig into this, uh, this uh, little section from the Office of Readings, uh, there are a couple things that you might listen for. First of all, keep in mind that this is probably preached in Lent. We don't know exactly what year uh, it was preached in. Uh, But, uh, you know, the reference to being tempted by Satan was a Lenten theme for the readings at the beginning of Lent, just as it is today. You know, some things just don't change. All these hundreds and hundreds of years later, 
across the centuries at the same time in the cycle of the liturgical year we are still thinking about the same things it's absolutely wonderful it connects us to our ancestors in the faith well there are some things that you want to listen for um, first of all uh, there's a, a wonderful theological phrase in here nos transfiguravit in say he transformed us or transfigured us over into himself now this is you know a key idea for uh, understanding how augustine sees uh, the church and the christian people and also about the psalms as uh, appropriate for christian prayer you know something from the old testament appropriate for our regular daily intense prayer now is christians remember that augustine uh, thought that the Old Testament prefigured, or uh, shall we say, it was like a, a prophet for the New Testament. And so the things that are in the Old Testament uh, are like to set up what was to come later, both in the New Testament and in the experience of Christians after the events of the New Testament. And the Psalms are privileged in this because for Augustine, Christ is speaking and praying to the Father in the Psalms, in the words of the Psalms. Simultaneously, in the words of the Psalms, we are praying to Christ. There's a back and a forward, and a backward and a forward. It's like a simultaneous exchange going on, back and forth. So that phrase, nos transfiguravit in say, he transforms us, it transfigures us into himself. You can imagine that he makes our voices his voice, and his voice becomes our voice. This is the way Christ also sees, uh, Augustine sees Christ with the church. Uh, for example, Christ, uh, Augustine talks about Christus totus. You know, there's the whole Christ. There's Christus caput and Christus corpus and then totus Christus. You know, there's Christ the head of the body, Christ the body, and then Christus totus. So Christians, when we pray the Psalms, we're praying to Christ, but then Christ is praying in us because of that intimate union between us and in him in the church and that's important also uh, for his interpretation of these texts because it's christ speaking you know we want to know exactly what all you know the words are saying so we have to really dig into the words word by word line by line try to understand what's going on in the psalms and in a literal way but also you know remembering that they prefigure they prefigure things that are to come and one of the keys of interpretation of these things is to remember that the, the faith of the church, the regula fide in the church, this gives us a key for the interpretation of things. It can't be separate. The faith of the church can't be separate from our interpretation of scripture. A very different way from looking, looking at scripture than some of the modern scripture scholars, huh? especially those who got a little bit too enthusiastic about the historical critical method. Uh, well, we've got to move on here. Look, uh, there are also some wonderful characteristic word plays. Uh, Augustine loves to play words, and his crowd must have delighted uh, also in how Augustine could just paint beautiful pictures and play with his words. Uh, in the Latin section of the what's coming up, listen for uh, a series of neses, of unlesses, and listen also for a wonderful, it's almost like a call and response 
question and answer thing kind of that comes up toward the end. You can almost hear the crowd reacting to him. It's a wonderful exchange of what Christ takes from us so that we can have something from him. And so there's going to be a series of de te sibi, like from you to himself, and then de se tibi, from himself to you. So you just shift shift a letter here and there. De te sibi, de se tibi. And all these serve to underscore, of course, the unity of Christ in his members. So this rapid back and forth, trying to convey the, the sense of simultaneity. Well, let's move on. Let's hear Augustine talking about Psalm 60 in the newer reckoning, 61. This is taken from the Enerationis Psalms, number 61. We'll hear it first in English, then in Latin, and this is the second reading in the Office of Readings for today, which is the first Sunday of Lent. And of course, we're dealing with the Liturgy of the Hours. Hear, O God, my petition. Listen to my prayer. Who is speaking? An individual, it seems. See if it is an individual. I cried out to you from the ends of the earth while my heart was in anguish. Now it is no longer one person. Rather, it is one in the sense that Christ is one, and we are all his members. What single individual can cry from the ends of the earth? The one who cries from the ends of the earth is none other than the Son's inheritance. It was said to him, Ask of me, and I shall give you the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. This possession of Christ, this inheritance of Christ, this body of Christ, this one church of Christ, this unity that we are, cries from the ends of the earth. What does it cry? What I said before. Hear, O God, my petition. Listen to my prayer. I cried out to you from the ends of the earth. That is, I made this cry to you from the ends of the earth. That is, on all sides. Why did I make this cry? While my heart was in anguish. The speaker shows that he is present among all the nations of the earth in a condition not of exalted glory, but of severe trial. Our pilgrimage on earth cannot be exempt from trial. We progress by means of trial. No one knows himself except through trial, or receives a crown except after victory, or strives, except against an enemy or temptations. The one who cries from the ends of the earth is in anguish, but is not left on his own. Christ chose to foreshadow us, who are his body, by means of his body in which he has died, risen, and ascended into heaven, so that the members of his body may hope to follow where their head has gone before. He made us one with him when he chose to be tempted by Satan. 
We have heard in the gospel how the Lord, Jesus Christ, was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Certainly, Christ was tempted by the devil. In Christ, you were tempted, for Christ received his flesh from your nature, but by his own power gained salvation for you. He suffered death in your nature, but by his own power gained glory for you. Therefore he suffered temptation in your nature, but by his own power gained victory for you. If in Christ we have been tempted, in him we overcome the devil. Do you think only of Christ's temptations and fail to think of his victory? See yourself as tempted in him, and see yourself as victorious in him. He could have kept the devil from himself, but if he were not tempted, he could not teach you how to triumph over temptation. Exaudi Deus deprecationem mea, intende orationi mea, quis dicit, quasi unus, vide si unus, apinibus terre ad te clamavi dum angeretur cormeum. Iamergo non unus, sed ideo unus, quia Christus unus, cuius omnes membra sumus, nam quis Unus homo clamat a finibus terre? Non clamat a finibus terre, nisi hereditas illa, de qua dictum est ipsi filio, postula a me, et dabo tibi gentes hereditatem tuam, et possessionem tuam terminos terre. Hec ergo Christi possessio, hec Christi hereditas, hoc Christi corpus, hec Una Christi Ecclesia, hec unitas, que nos sumus, clamat a finibus terre. Quidautem clamat. Quod supradixi, exaudi Deus deprecationem meam, intende orationi mee a finibus terre ad te clamavi. Idest, hoc ad te clamavi a finibus terre. Idest, undique. Sed quare clamavi hoc, dum angeretur cormeum. Ostendit se esse per omnes gentes toto orbe terarum, non in magna gloria, sed in magna tentatione. Namque vita nostra in hac peregrinatione non potest esse sine tentatione quia provectus noster per tentationem nostram fit, nec sibi quisque inotescit nisi tentatus, nec potest coronari, nisi vicerit, nec potest vincere, nisi certaverit, nec potest certare, nisi inimicum et tentationes habuerit. Angitur ergo iste a finibus te reclamans, sed tamen non relinquitur, Coniam nos ipsos, quod est corpus suum, boluit 
prefigurare et in illo corpore suo, in quo iam et mortus est et resurrectit et in celum ascendit, ut quo caput precessit, illuc se membra sectura confidant. Ergo nos transfiguravit in se, quando voluit tentaria satana. Modo legebatur in Evangelio, quia Dominus Iesus Christus in eremo tentabatur a diabolo, prorsus Christus tentabatur a diabolo. In Christo enim tu tentabaris, quia Christus de te sibi habebat carnem, de se tibi salutem, de te sibi mortem, de se tibi vitam, de te sibi contumelias, de se tibi honores, ergo de te sibi tentationem, de se tibi victoriam. Si in illo nos tentatis sumus, in illo nos diabolum superamus, attendis quia Christus tentatus est, et non attendis quia vicit? Agnosce te in illo tentatum, et te in illo agnosce vincentem. Poterat, a se diabolum prohibere, sed si non tentaretur, tibi tentando vincendi magisterium non preberet. That was Augustine of Hippo, the great doctor of grace, on Psalm 60 or Psalm 61 in the Newer Reckoning. That wonderful passage at the end, you know, you can almost imagine the crowd getting into it and, you know, the crowd getting, you know, really used to oratory, right? You know, there was no TV, there was no radio. I mean, this was part of their, the warp and weft of their society. They were a very oral culture, and they would go to listen to good speakers, and they would interact with the speakers. And, you know, we know from internal evidence in sermons that Augustine interacts with his audience. And so you can practically hear them as he's talking, getting more and more into what he was saying as he hammered home his point with these different rhetorical tricks. Well, you know, why why don't we just let's just go back to hippo just for a moment and listen to the last part of that here let's just turn the time machine on just hang on hang on. we're going to get there ergo nos transfiguravit in se quando voluit tentaria satana Modo, legebatur in Evangelio, quia Dominus Iesus Christus in eremo tentabatur a diabolo. Prorsus Christus tentabatur a diabolo. In Christo enim tu tentabaris, quia Christus de te sibi habebat carnem, de se tibi salutem. De te sibi mortem. De se tibi vita, de te sibi contumelias, de se tibi honores, ergo, 
DT CB Tentationem DC TB Victoria ah, Okay, uh, here, here we go again. Hang on. Okay. Ah. Stings a little bit. Here, let me get this thing turned off. Oh, I don't do that too often, but um, it's valuable to do it. Uh, just to try to get a sense, you know, what it might have sounded like. You know, for the people in, in hip, you know, when you, until you read this stuff out loud in Latin with a little bit of gusto, you know, remembering that it's, it's a sermon. It's not just some thing on, on the page, uh, meant to be stared at. Uh, you can't really get a sense of it. So I urge you to read things out loud. You can often glean a great deal more from them than you could if you, if you just read it through. And if there's something that I'd like you to take away from, from this sermon. It would be that powerful sense that Augustine has of our unity in Christ, in the church. As members of the church, we are members of Christ. If he was tempted and is victorious, then we, when we're tempted, when we are downtrodden, when we are uh, downcast, when we are oppressed, when we are challenged, we too can be victorious. It is not impossible for us because Christ crowns, in this wonderful phrase of Augustine, he crowns his own merits in us. He gives us the strength. He makes our hands his own. He, in the liturgy, he takes our gestures and our voices and makes them his own. He is the actor in liturgy. He is the one who helps us through the difficult times in life, and that comes from our membership in Holy Church. How important it is for us to be good members of the church when we hurt ourselves through sin. We hurt not only our relationship with God, we hurt everyone else. When we try to build ourselves up and be good in virtue and receive the graces that Christ, Christ gives us so that we can be virtuous, then we are helping to build up the whole church. There is a union with all of the other people because we are in union with Christ in holy church. The only church that he established the only church to whom he gave his sacraments, the only church to whom he gave his authority to teach, to govern, and to sanctify. That's Holy Catholic Church. We are its members, and we have all of the benefits of that membership, provided we stay in union. I think it's time for some voicemail. Some of you left me voicemail at my Skype address. That's WDTPRS, Whiskey Delta Tango Papa Romeo Sierra. I don't answer those calls, but you mail. And I'm really glad when I get them. Well, maybe they're not that great, but I do like to get them. 
Well, no promises in that regard either, but I'll do my best. Let's let's get to some of that voicemail. Hi, Father Zoltoff. My name is Ryan Logan, and I'm from New York. And uh, let me thank you for your your great uh, blog and uh, all the uh, all the work you do for uh, the church and your and your service to God. Um, I just wanted to uh, say I think a topic that would be interesting on your blog would be the announcement of an apostolic visitation to the uh, convents of the United States. Aside from the um, the reform of uh, the liturgy and the Tridentine Mass, which I'm very much in favor of. I think one of the biggest issues pressing in the Church is reform of religious life, and I know the Pope, considering his age, is not going to be able to do everything, but I think this possibly is a sign of things to come, and I'd be curious to know uh, if if you think we could expect maybe some reforms of religious life, such as a return to community life, common prayer, wearing of the religious habits sometime in the future. Ryan, you've come up with a really... Really good point. Um, first of all, you know, we had the apostolic visitation of the seminaries, and uh, hopefully that will bear fruit. And now we're going to be looking at religious life, uh, where it is strong, where it is falling down. But I think you put your finger on something very, very important. You know, young people are interested in giving their lives over to something, but they don't want to give their lives to something that is squishy or uncertain. They want to give their lives to something that has an actual goal, an objective, and an identity. And so having a clear uh, apostolate that is consistent with the whole purpose for your group you know, according to the uh, reasons the founder set it up and, you know, what the Constitution say, what your spirituality is, and then how you express that as members of the community, either, you know, contemplatively together in the community or out, you know, toward the world in a more active apostolate, and then how you actually, you know, dress, for example, how you live the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience uh, according to a rule with other people. I mean, all these things really have to be looked at. And, you know, when you you think about the religious, I often think about how many things in the world could have been averted because of the prayer, for example, of sisters, contemplative sisters, perhaps before the Blessed Sacrament, you know, praying in reparation for the sins of the world. Uh, in the time of economic downturn, you know, I think about how important church groups will be or the work maybe of religious orders will be in the future. You know, in the history of Europe, it was the church and religious orders that handled things like caring for the sick and, and feeding the poor. Uh, the religious orders were incredibly important for the fabric of our society. Will that take place again? Well, you know, if they are not strong and not healthy, uh, then we're going to have a real gap uh, through a huge crack into which people will will fall if uh, it's not bridged by the wonderful work, uh, both spiritual and corporal, that religious uh, institutes and orders and new communities uh, can perform for society at large. Uh, you know, making Christ uh, known and loved and manifest uh, to all the people who need spiritual and corporal works of mercy, but also just being a good witness that it's possible to live a life of holiness. So you brought up something very good. And perhaps, you know, when this visitation comes along and we know more about it, you know, we can explore that a bit on the blog. Thank you very much for that. Hi, Father Z. 
big fan out here. Father Andrew Johnson, OCSO, still a Trappist monk, but seeking incarnation in the Diocese of Fall River, Mass., for several reasons. Stations at St. Francis in uh, Hyannis, which is the traditionally the Kennedy's Church, and the traditional rite mass, this is, of course, in the brick-by-brick brick department, traditional mass, which had been in a tiny chapel in Chatham, is now moving to this historic church in Hyannis. I'm going to be saying the uh, extraordinary rite mass every Sunday at 1 p.m., starting on February 15th. The high altar was donated by the Kennedys. <clears throat> They're no longer our parishioners. They've gone to another more shall we say, accepting parish of their views. But we have a good group. Just wanted you to know about this. Um, so uh, we begin, as I say, February 15th. Thank you very much for that, Father. It's wonderful news. Yes, that definitely is in the brick-by-brick brick department. You know, the, the fruits of Samorum Pontificum will uh, be slow in coming, but they, I think they're coming faster and faster than we might have believed even a, a year or so ago. Uh, you know, Sumorum Pontificum and the emancipation or f liberalization or freeing up, however you want to call it, I kind of like emancipation of the older form of mass, along with all the other people who wanted it, you know, being emancipated to, in a certain extent, um, is going to act as a wonderful leaven in the church, uh, especially helping us remember what it is we are doing in the liturgy. And younger priests all over the place are getting interested in the older form. And as they do, as they learn these things, it will change the way that they celebrate the newer form of Mass as well, so that everyone can benefit from the fruits of continuity with our past. So I'm always very, very happy when I hear things like, you know, old altars, high altars being used in old churches, that uh, things are being reclaimed. The older form of mass uh, is being made more available according to the provisions of Samorum Pontificum. And of course, you know, the provisions of that aren't just suggestions. It is the will of the Supreme Pontiff that that document be implemented. So thank you very much, Father, for that great brick-on-brick brick news. Hey, Father Z, this is Tom Burke, uh, down in sunny Arizona at Wickenburg, and uh, uh, thank you again for all you do. We uh, There's lots of us out here that really uh, thrive on uh, on your blog and, uh, and, and the information that you give. But anyway, um, I had to tell you, I had to use the voicemail to tell you something really and sad at the same time. <clears throat> Our local uh, Novus Ordo Mass in Wickenburg uh, on Sundays uh, always is a guitar mass at 8 or 10, either one. You can't escape it. So, of course, I, I can't escape it. I go to Phoenix. and uh, <clears throat> Anyway, uh, I had to tell you what they do at the Lord's Prayer. Besides all the hand-holding, they stretch all the way across the aisles, and it's always packed. And then they sing this Protestant rendition of the Lord's Prayer. And at the end of it, and this is why I had to use the voicemail, because I don't know how to do this on email or in your blog. At the end of it, they sing, woo <laughs> It's just bizarre. So, of course, I've quit going there on Sundays. Yeah, I can understand why you might stop going there. Um, but, you know, it just never ceases to amaze me how many dopey things, you know, some 
people uh, can plug into mass that don't belong there. You know, I don't really have a problem with people holding hands, you know, during the Our Father. Well, there's nothing really wrong with that, I guess. The, the, where it gets wrong is when you start telling people to hold hands for the Our Father or creating some kind of, you know, strange custom that people then think is obligatory during Mass, giving them the false impression that you're supposed to hold hands or, or even leading to you know, people, you know, trying to force you to hold their hand or do these other kinds of weird things that you hear about, you know, these strange abuses, personal interjections into the church's worship. Now, remember that the point of worship and the point of religion is to create an, an encounter with mystery to have an experience of awe at transcendence. And I ask you, where does holding hands and go, woo, or whatever it is that they do, do that? I just don't, you know, somebody, please, you know, send me a good argument for that. Well, let's go on. Richard Morley, M-O-R-L-E-Y, Slidell, Louisiana. And I know you get 10,000 emails. I sent you one asking about the clarifications, which were supposed to come out last uh, month, but haven't. And I was just wondering if you could put something on there, if you've heard anything. I know you have uh, a back door in Rome to get sources and information. So if something can go on your blog, because I check Rorate Chaley and what does the prayer really say, first thing every morning. Thanks. Keep up the good work. And I don't care about the zucchini. And just tell the other guy, go find something else to cook for himself. Bye. Yeah, no, that whole thing about zucchini. Well, I think that has some, something to do with uh, uh, some of the recipes and food photos, and things like that, that I post uh, on the blog. I do a lot of cooking. I worked as a cook for years before I went into the seminary, and I've kind of kept it up. And uh, every once in a while, I'll post things on the blog. And then I get, you know, snarky emails from people, you know, assuming that, you know, I, if if I'm not, you know, rubbing gravel through my hair and eating old crusts of bread, then, you know, I must not be holy enough. Well, I've never really been able to understand uh, why, you know, taking wonderful ingredients that God gives us and then making, you know, bad food out of them uh, does, you know, God any glory or honor. Well, anyway, you know, I, I digress. Look, I don't have any insight as to when this new, uh, when the clarificatory document will come out about Sumorum Pontificum. You know, there are a lot of things in Sumorum Pontificum, the Pope's motu proprio by which he emancipated us and the, the older form of Mass. A lot of things in there that aren't particularly clear. And I think that there are uh, some ecclesiastics out there who use those ambiguities in order to repress uh, the obvious point of Summorum Pontificum, and that is the reintegration of the older form of liturgy into the life of the church when appropriate, and putting that decision in the hands of pastors, you know, relieving bishops of the obligation to have to be micromanaging these issues, and uh, giving people the opportunity to uh, to uh, express their, their heartfelt uh, spiritual desires and, you know, get their needs fulfilled through the older form in continuity with what we've had in the church. Anyway, I don't have any insight into when it's starting, when it's going to come. They're very tight-lipped about it. I hear that, you know, from what I've heard, there was progress that has been made on it, but it's being studied. But 
you know, do we really need it? I think that's a good question. You know, I mean, I'm getting less and less interested to have this document come out. Yeah, maybe we just need a time uh, just to implement some more pontificum as it is. And maybe so maybe a clarificatory document won't come out until the three-year period that the Pope mentioned is over. So we're just going to have to see. I just don't know when it's going to happen. Maybe a construction worker working on a home Might be living in a mansion You might live in a dome well, folks, with that, I wrap this one up. It's been a long time since I've made a podcast. Uh, a couple of reasons for that. Technical uh, difficulties or uh, opportunities, I guess. A kind reader uh, from the blog sent me a brand new microphone, a higher quality microphone from my Amazon.com wish list. And I've got a little shock absorber and I'll move for it now. And so uh, that'll help a lot. But I had to learn how to use it. And then also I've got new software, which I had to learn how to use. And I switched it to a different computer. I wanted to get it off my laptop and onto a desktop. And that changed all the settings. And just nothing was working with sound card problems. It was just a, just a real pain. So I'm starting to figure it out. There might still be some sound balance problems, but uh, we'll get there. So uh, to a, a certain extent, it was nice to go back in time, have a little nostalgic trick, back to the first podcast. And those rudimentary things with a microphone I had literally taped to an old wallet. Uh, something propped up uh, so that I could read. It was just absolutely amazing that my room up over Rome with all the traffic in the background or something. And uh, But I'm also rethinking the whole podcast thing. I don't know what I want to do with it. I want a whole new vision, a whole new purpose, a whole new style, a whole new approach. And uh, it's going to take me a little while to work that one out. And maybe you can send me some voicemail on it. You got by using Skype if you have it. And that's uh, the address for Skype is WDTPRS. Uh, just like the, the blog address, uh, .com, WDTPRS.com. If uh, you can't remember that, uh, you can find also uh, telephone numbers and the Skype number on the left sidebar of the blog. Just scroll down and you'll find numbers for the UK and for the United States. You can leave voicemail. I don't call you back, but you can leave the voicemail. And uh, as we take this out, I would only ask that as your Lent continues, you would do me the kindness of praying for me as I will for you. Somebody. Somebody. Well, it may be the devil, and it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody.